So you do as your conscience allows. Um, if you're willing and able, we will turn to Philippians chapter number 4. For the scripture reading this morning, and for the text at hand, Philippians chapter number 4, as we continue our exposition there this morning, taking as our target uh, verses 6 and 7. And if you will, we'll stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word as we take up our portion in verse number 1, and we'll actually conclude in verse number 9. But again, the emphasis this morning, verses 6 and 7. Paul writes to Philippi these words, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown. So stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore you, Odia, and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, my brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is any praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Father, we do revel this morning in your goodness. As was mentioned, Father, we, seek, we should seek to do what is good and right. And Father, because it pours out from your very character and nature, you are good. Father, you are a giver who gives that goodness to each of us. Father, we know that the scripture teaches that if we as evil men know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will the Father give the Spirit to those who ask? Father, we know that it would be a good thing this morning that the Spirit of God would rule and reign in our hearts, that He would take the text of Scripture um, to the very root of our being, and that fruit may spring forth, Father. Um, so we're asking this morning, Father, what an example so many men have been in my own life. What, what fathers, Father, even before us, in, in spiritual example and how they treat their children and the good things that they provide them with. Father, we know that, that is, there is an infinite gap between that natural reality. But that's just an image and a picture of the goodness of the Father this morning. So, Father, we're begging and pleading with you to give us your divine spirit, Father, in full measure, as we approach the text this morning. Father, that you would help and aid us to proclaim the truth of God's word with faithfulness and that it would go forth with power. And that too, you would help us to receive it with the same faithfulness and that it would grip our hearts, Father, with that same power. The same power that saved us is that same power that continues to work in us to continually, Father, save us from this world secure our position in Christ by the sanctifying power of the very word of God 
So, Father, may we commune with you this morning. We are begging and pleading your Son, Father, to make himself known in our presence, we, uh, to, to, to walk this morning among the candlesticks in such a way that we can know that this morning, Father, Christ was among us. Make it evident, Father. Make him known. Exalt his name. We know you delight in him, Father, so help us to delight in him as well. And may your will be done, Father, in the next hour. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you so much for standing. According to a study, it's almost 10 years ago now, so you can imagine just the... Um, the numbers are probably less than what they were, if I were to venture a guess. Approximately one out of five Americans, so 20 to 25 percent, um, struggle with anxiety, depression, worry, despair, discontentment, fear in such a way that they would use um, mechanical means, mood-altering drugs, various um, other interventions that are not even in that number, sedatives, antidepressants, antipsychotic medications, uh, such to deal with the difficulties of life. And if that doesn't sound that bad, one or two out of, one out of five, one out of four. Um, but when you put it into numbers, that, that would have equated at that time to 40 to 50 million um, American adult people. And that wasn't taking into account the, the, the amazing numbers now that are coming out of children who are on also mood-altering drugs for things like ADHD, um, depression, a, a chronic anxiety disorder. The numbers actually, when you look at those, are greater than the numbers of adults. Um, now it's 30 to 40 percent um, in, in, in a lot of children as diagnoses are going forth. Uh, these medications represent a billion-dollar business. Pharmaceutical um, uh, mountain has been built upon um, this. It's a big business. It's um, it's very it's very profitable for those who are are engaged. As I mentioned, worry, discouragement, depression, despair, discontentment, fear are all words that are captured in that type of concept. And even in the concept of this verse here, as we look at verse number 6, as Paul um, commands us to be anxious for nothing. Um, that You may have a translation that, that, that translates that anxieties or anxiousness or anxious or cares. Um, Paul deals with it here, and the scriptures do often. I mean, this seems to be not only from a biblical expression, but also from a natural experiential life in this world to be um, as common as almost anything and everything. That those twenty to twenty-five percent also do not do not represent those who struggle with it that do not pursue such endeavors. Um, so the number of those that struggle with it is all the more. We may even argue this morning that all of us, to some capacity, deal with it on a daily or a weekly basis. And some just deal with it better than others, with or without um, medication or other um, interventions. That it seems to be anxiety um, and a movable thread in the fabric of life. And when you open your eyes up to that reality, it, it, you begin to see it everywhere. 
working in a hospital, being a pastor, um, being open with my family. Um, this is something that is plaguing to all. I'm literally plaguing to all. And not only unbelievers, but believers. God's people. This is not something unknown to them. When you read the Psalms, you see the full expression of the emotional constitution of men, but not only men, but of God's people. You see men like David. You see men like Solomon. You see the psalmists in general display that full range of emotion. And one of those components um, are in the anxieties and the worries, the fears um, that, that, that are embodied in the man. For example, Psalm 94, verse 19, In the multitude of my anxieties within me, your comforts delight my soul. Psalm 139, verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. My, it can be translated, my thoughts, my disquietings, my anxious thoughts, the NASB, NAS says. Proverbs 12, 25, Solomon writes, Anxiety in the heart of man causes depression. But a good word makes it glad. Not only is the biblical expression overwhelming, uh, not only in the psalmist, but in men like Elijah and uh, other faithful men. Church history um, is riddled with faithful men whom we uphold. I, I don't know a Baptist that goes a month without quoting Charles Haddon Spurgeon. <laughs> Um, one of the most prominent and proliferate and possibly, we would argue, spiritually successful men throughout church history, particularly in um, the 1800s. And he was overwhelmingly depressed, if you read his writings. Um, there were times where he would take months at a time on sabbatical, going away to Mentone, France, um, that God would encourage his heart and soul, and then he would come back to the ministry. One of those episodes, he would eventually die there outside of his church as he sought to recuperate uh, from the depressions and anxieties of life. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote what we might say is a, a, a general treatise to be upheld even in this day on depression that was formulated um, there in Westminster Chapel as he preached through to his own congregation because of the difficulties that they had personally and practically with this. And that this is something that we as believers should not shy away from, not always contribute even to sin. We should recognize, though, that it is, that it is a reality in this life and that God's people should not ignore it, minimize it, um, ultimately villainize it, but learn what God's Word um, gives us on the... On the on the terms of this reality. Now, the wonderful thing is, is that God creates the world in this way, providentially understanding that this would be one of those threads and fabric, and the fabric of society and, and mankind. And at the same time, He does not lay upon us that task of making brick without straw. Boys and girls, it might be an equally suiting illustration to drive more home, but he doesn't, make a, he doesn't require us to make a cake without flour or to build a house yet not give us the materials um, to do it. But God is gracious in such a way that, yes, the anxieties of this life are a portion of the fabric of day-to-day -day living, yet at the same time, He gives us and affords us the means in Christ um, to engage with it properly. 
And he actually, it seems to be the will of God and the desire of God um, to, 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 uh, that these anxieties would fall away in Christ. That we would cast our cares upon him. And that the apostle here deals with that very reality in this text. It's not something that he avoids. Paul himself, no doubt, understands the anxieties and the worries of life. Um, He's not sitting in his ivory tower there um, in Rome or at Philippi without understanding, writing to these people. Um, He's in the midst of sufferings, the evils of the age, not only the evils of um, the age in the sense of opposition from the evil one, the flesh, the devil, um, but also from the evils from within the church as he is being um, as he is being maligned and, and, and treated in such a way to, to, to even receive offense from the brethren. But um, it is important to note that it is from these lips, from this pen and from that heart, um, in which he encourages, exhorts, and even commands in Philippians chapter 4 and verse number 6 with full understanding of what he's asking. Be anxious for nothing. We see that again in a panoply here of just rapid fire commands. To, as Paul begins in Philippians chapter 4 and verse number 1, to stand fast or to stand firm in the Lord. And we've looked over the last weeks at the, 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 the corporate nature of that, that, is, that, that, that the unity is necessary within the body to be able to stand in such a way that is firm, gripped in this world, to build kingdom of God, the proclamation of the gospel, even as in Philippians chapter 1 notes, to put fear in the eyes of the enemy. And that too with that, to stand firm, that we are to have an immovable joy in Christ. In verse number 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. This double emphatic phrase that joy in the Lord is a command from God and it is a privilege that He affords to His people. If you're going to stand firm in the Lord, then you must have the joy of Christ in your life such that it culminates even in the rejoicing um, in this world. Not only that, but you're to have a gentleness of character. Verse number 5. A graciousness, we argued last week. A kindness. Not a passivity such that you are a doormat lying upon the, um, the vestibule of this world. Um, but gentleness should characterize your fight. And as we engage in the world in unity and joy, and there is a way to, to, that, that, that the fight should be characterized. And Paul argues that that is in a gentleness of character. And there is a fight to be had. While this man is not to be a quarrelsome man, and he is to know what fights to take up, and he is know to how to he is to know how to fight to fight that battle with full control of his spirit, because the Lord is at hand. He's there to help and to aid, and at the same time, um, we are going to give an account to him one day on how we have engaged in this world. And then he moves in verse number six to deal with the peace of God in the soul. Of a man. That if we are to stand firm and stand fast in unity, we're not only to have joy and gentleness, but we are to have the peace of God ruling in our hearts, guarding our hearts and minds um, in Christ Jesus. And that's what we're going to give our time to this morning. Um, And I'm going to hang this sermon on three nails. The first one, this word, imperative. 
Boys and girls, you remember, as I mentioned that word multiple times over the past several weeks, an imperative is a command. It is something that God requires for us. But again, do not, believe, do not look, if you're God's children, at God's commands as if they are burdensome or grievous. That these are good for you. And that these are privileges and gifts to you to live in this world in Christ. That the peace of God, although a command, and seemingly we are unable to feel that way, or to affect that way, or to be that way, God affords you that as a privilege, thus it should be our pursuit. And that this morning we should pursue the command to be anxious for nothing, um, and to receive it as a good gift from God. And that this is a good gift and a good pursuit, um, not only today, but for the rest of your life. But in, uh, in accord with our previous sermons, you'll remember, boys and girls, that we've often defined what we mean, but two, we have defined what we do not mean. So I want to tell you this morning, first, what Paul does not mean. What does Paul not mean? So the imperative here is be anxious for nothing. There in verse number six, um, the, the first portion. What doesn't he mean? Well, first, he doesn't mean that you shouldn't care about anything. He says, be anxious for nothing. That doesn't mean that, 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 that there is a carelessness of soul in, or in the mind of man. He doesn't mean that nothing should affect you. He doesn't mean that there shouldn't be genuine concern. Actually, in the exact same book, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 20, where we were at months ago, Paul writes this. As he's, going to, he's commending Timothy to the people of God there at Philippi, he says, For I have no one like-minded, speaking of Timothy, who will sincerely care for your state. That word there, care, is the exact same word that Paul uses here in Philippians chapter 4 and verse number 6. Be anxious for nothing, Paul is saying, care for nothing. Now, he can't mean the same type of thing in both. Why? Because one is positive. Paul is commending him to him for his cares and his anxieties, it could be translated, his concern for the people of God. Um, and, he, and he actually equiv- he, 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 he parallels that or, or says that that's the same as my care for you. I have no one like-minded, no one of the same mind, meaning that Timothy has the same mind for you that I have for you. Thus, I'm sending him to you. There's no one else. Why? Because he cares for you. There's this godly concern, this godly um, anxiety for them. But here he says that there's nothing in this world that, it, that, that, that you should be concerned about. And so one is virtuous and the other seems to be sinful. Um, so Paul's not saying don't care about anything. Paul actually in 1 Corinthians 12 verses 24 and 25 as he's speaking of body life, members one to another, um, says this, that God has put the body together giving greater honor to the less honorable, so that there would be no division in the body, but that the members would have the same concern or care for each other. That not only are God's leaders in the church to have a care and concern, but also God's people are to have a general care and concern for each other. And this care and concern will actually be the means by which um, which unity is preserved because of the care that they have, particularly the stronger for the weaker, or the more prominent for the less. Paul too lists this in a panoply or a multitude of uh, the same word in a multitude of trials that he's endured. You'll remember um, that he says in 2 Corinthians 11, 
uh, many things like this. Three times I was beaten with rocks. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Night and day I spent in the deep. In journeys often. Verse 27, he says, In weariness and toil, in sleepness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. And he almost crowns it all with this. He says, Besides other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. That Paul had a daily pressure of concern um, such that a shepherd should have for the people of God. So a shepherd of God's flocks who feel no concern or cares nothing for the sanctification and growth of his people is not, a, is not following in Paul or Timothy's example. He is not a godly man. As I mentioned before, it would be the same as some parents that I have known uh, who, are, who have committed great offense towards their children saying that I'm going to follow this prescription and they can do what they want. I'm not accountable. You know, no, God, God gives God's people a, a spiritual concern for those in whom they are bound to. That the shepherd is to have a general concern of, of even pressing upon him, Paul says, such that it compels him to fulfill his duty appropriately. And such should parents. Parents should be burdened for the sake of their children, not kind of washing their hands because they are their own man or their own woman or their own boy or their own girl. They can do what they please. That's actually selfish motivation. It's looking at one's own, not realizing that we are wrapped up um, in these roles and responsibilities to one, one to another that God has given us. But there is a godly concern that is virtuous. And so Paul is not insinuating that we're not to care about things ever such that it would cultivate a careless spirit or a laziness of heart. Some would even argue such a thing from Matthew chapter 6 where Paul says, take no thought for the morrow. We're not saying that you take no thought such that you only live for the day in the sense that you make no plans. We know that the Proverbs overwhelmingly speak of the general blessing that comes for the man who is prepared and plans for the future. That just as we argued last week that gentleness is not a license to cast your arms to the side, lay on the floor and become a doormat for the glory of God, you are neither to do the same with this concept of peace or lack of anxieties. Some look at gentleness and again and say they wouldn't hurt a fly. That's what that means. Or a person who's weak and passive and would never engage in a fight. But that's not true. A person characterized by true Christ-like gentleness is not characterized by being captive to his emotions. He's not quarrelsome or quick to fight, but he knows what battles to fight and his fight is characterized by graciousness. And in a similar manner, lack of anxiety doesn't mean that you just cast your arms down, care about nothing, but, in, but, but, but that in your plans and your pursuit of building God's kingdom, you do so without sinful anxieties and worry cumbered about because you are laboring in full trust that the Father hears your prayers and that He will supply that need. It is a privilege Prayer is not a simple and solitary substitute for our plans, but to be in support of our plans. That we are not to stop everything that we're doing and pray um, exclusively all the time, although that is necessary at times. But that as we are laboring in God's kingdom, we are to do it without sinful worry and praying along the way, trusting that God will carry out His plan um, in our lives. So, God's, so, so Paul doesn't mean a full carelessness but a true, genuine concern and prayerfulness that accompanies um, labor in the kingdom of God. 
What else does Paul mean? I'll give you this quote from another faithful man. He says, he gives a definition. He says, so, so, so what is sinful anxiety? Well, he says, quote, fretfulness and excessive worry. The harassing, wearying care that troubles the soul, distracts the mind, and paralyzes the hand such that duties are neglected. Say that again. Fretfulness and excessive worry, the harassing, wearying care that troubles the soul, distracts the mind, paralyzes the hand, such that duties are neglected. That it's a mind that is so preoccupied, that it is a soul that is so distracted by the things of this world that it concerns them to the point of, of, of paralyzing them in what God has actually commanded them to do. Um, they just can't function. And their mind is often distracted. You know, the word worry, the English word worry, um, again, this is not the biblical word, but the English word worry comes from an Anglo-Saxon term which actually means to strangle. Literally, in 1300s, it was defined like this, to slay, to kill, or by biting and shaking the throat, as a dog or a wolf does, from the Old English, that I can't pronounce, um, to strangle. That it would be used figuratively of mental trouble in that definition, or anxiety, a torment of the mind. That unbiblical Sinful worry strangles the life of the man, kills peace and quiet in the soul, and the anxious soul can never rest. The worrier's mind of this sort is always thinking about everything in such a way to deter him from what he's actually supposed to do. And maybe you can, maybe you can sympathize with this. Um, he can't get over the fact that he's continually doing poorly He's always thinking about the things that he ought to do or maybe the things that he didn't do. Um, things that he couldn't do. The things that he needs to do. So much that it torments him and he eventually does nothing. It can be the mind of the perfectionist or the obsessive compulsive um, who can never do enough or be good enough or check enough or feel enough to be safe enough. We say, man, that sounds kind of reasonable. We almost adult, uh, make that kind of adultish um, you know, that's, that's a character of somebody who's responsible. That sounds responsible. You check the door, you know, ten times before you go to bed. Well, it may be. But if it's tormenting your soul such that you can't sleep well, it's not healthy. It strangles out the spiritual soul as well. Maybe it's a person with an oversensitive conscience who's constantly worrying about the things that he's done wrong um, against another man or against God before God's people and he can't get peace. He creates offenses in his mind that are unnecessary. He tortures himself for it. It makes him feel the need to apologize over and over and over again without accepting the true forgiveness of God and man for the same thing because he's worried that God won't forgive him and neither will they. It, 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 it prevents him from trusting man. Worry, it kills joy. A warrior can't enjoy life. You know, you'll find that in this environment here, these rapid fire commands, that they are all connected and they live in an environment of godliness together. You, know, you don't have a man or a woman who are just overwhelmed with the joy of Christ, rejoicing always in the Lord, yet they have no peace. You'll actually find that these, these animals live together, that this fruit is, is in accord with godly soil, with Christ-like character. Um, 
that a worrier can't enjoy life. Not even normal activities. He can't go to the store without worrying that everyone's looking at him, what he's thinking about what he's wearing, what he's saying, just overthinking things in his mind. You can't go to work with joy because you're worried about whether or not he likes you or she likes you or they like you or what did they think. And, and such that to the point that you can't think about anything, even the task at hand, that's your poor employee. Um, a worrier loses the ability for sustained concentration. They can't read for long, even short periods of time, because their mind wanders about everything. Um, they can't stop thinking about this or that long enough to even read an entire page. And some of us can't make it through an entire sermon or a lecture or a, a, a chapter without worrying about something um, before or after. You worry about everything. It kills your health. It's a health destroyer. Um, people like this, they don't sleep well. And they get trouble digesting food. They can't recover from illness well. Anxiety is often the source of eating disorders, panic attacks, endocrine disorders, GI ulcerations, cardiac disorders, palpitations, blood pressure problems. It's a relationship killer. Relationships are built on trust and worries you can't trust. It leads to paranoia. It leads to inability to open up, to vulnerability. Um, it leads to intimate relationship problems. You can't be happy with another person because you're always questioning motives and actions. Um, this is what we're talking about this morning. And it's plaguing not only unbelievers, but believers. And thus it must be addressed. Let me say from a positive perspective, now that I've, I've uh, concerned you all, <laughs> um, from a mortification perspective, you know what this means? This means that if you deal with anxiety in a biblical fashion, and you're on the front end of it by God's grace and by the power of His Spirit, if this is one of those root sins that when you kill it, it will kill a whole host. Everything that I just said, if you can deal with the anxieties of life, then, then it corrects all of those. Thus, um, one commentator writes, speaking of this sin, an anxiety about, uh, it speaks of it as, as one of the root sins. An anxiety about finances give rise to greed, he says, coveting, hoarding, stealing. That anxiety about succeeding give rise to irritability, abruptness, and surliness. Anxiety about relationships give, it can cause people to be withdrawn, uncaring about other people. That, that anxiety about someone uh, will, will respond to you um, and uh, to make you cover up the truth, lie about certain things. So if anxiety can be conquered, he says, it will be a mortal blow um, to so many other sins. And I think that he's right. I think that he's right. Um, that worriness is, or worry, a biblical expression of that might be in Psalm chapter 42 and verse number 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Maybe we just concluded all into that, everything that I, I just said. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? And thus he preaches to himself and says, Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him for the help of His countenance. Maybe the New Testament parallel of that would be that passage that we just read in, Mar in Matthew, or Luke chapter 10 and verse number 40. Where Martha, being distracted by all of her preparations, the whole time she's running in the household, preparing everything for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I mean, it is done in such a way that she is anxious and troubled, the text says. And Jesus corrects her gently 
and says, Martha, your worries, even your legitimate concerns are distracting you from the things that truly matter. So let's apply this to Martha. Does this mean that Martha should have just left the house in shambles because it didn't really matter? Of course not. It didn't mean that she should just have no concern at all. But that while she was working, she was not to allow her labors to distract her from the actual true work that God has given to her. That her work in the home was to cultivate an environment of worship and the responsibilities at hand worried her and thus distracted her from the true work. That the home, that what she was given to do was to be an environment in which the good thing, the true thing, the best thing was to take place. And too much focus and worry about the environment actually um, restricted her from doing and obeying God and what was truly, um, what was truly necessary And that is worship. Thus he commands Mary on that part. So so, so the the idea is not to just say, I have no concern at all. These things don't matter. It doesn't matter if we work and labor. Worship is from the heart. No, worship from the heart is undergirded by a certain type of attitude. With a lack of worry and concern. And yet the the faith and the prayerful thankfulness and faithfulness of God's people to labor and to work in a certain type of fashion. But unbiblical worry and, and anxiety is the type of fretfulness that is tyrannical. Such that it controls your life to the extent that it prohibits you from actually faithfulness. Thus Paul says, none of that, boys and girls, none of that men and women, is to exist in your life. None of it. It's an exhaustive command. He says, pretty much, allow no, let nothing, he says, um, let none of you be anxious. Be anxious for nothing. I'm not going to go there, but you know Matthew chapter 6 and verse number 25, um, where Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount gives that great uh, exhortation to us to, uh, to, to to care for nothing. Why? Because we're trusting in the faithfulness of God to keep His promises. Again, it doesn't mean that you just cast your hands down, but that you're trusting in God. It's really a faith issue. Thus, in Matthew chapter 6 and verse number 30, um, uh, Jesus exhorts the people with this. Will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And it's actually a problem that biblical anxiety, unbiblical anxiety or sinful anxiety is a problem of the people of God lacking faith. It is a faithlessness that produces such realities. But anxiety generally extends from a failure to trust, to believe in God's caring provision for His children. And that being anxious about these things is a mark of unbelievers, he actually argues. Verse 32 of Matthew 6, he says, For all these things, uh, he says, Therefore do not worry, saying, what, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God. So be active, be pursuing those things that truly matter, and God will, in sufficient time, present to you and take care of those needs. He's saying that, that otherwise is actually a mark of unbelievers. That the Gentiles and the pagans act like that, you are not. And that the prohibition extends again to any equation, any combination, and all the summation of every circumstance in this world. 
with the flesh, the world, the devil, no matter what, Paul is saying, be anxious for nothing. That you are not to indulge in those sinful anxieties. And again, the Philippians um, could have came back and said, Paul, you just don't understand. The opposition that we're feeling, you don't know about the enemies at our doorsteps. You don't. You just don't. You just don't get it. Like they, and they knew better than that. <laughs> I guarantee you they didn't write a letter like that. Why? Because they knew that Paul understood anxiety. Not only does he write about it, but he is in the crisis of his life there in Rome, just possibly months away from being beheaded for the proclamation of the gospel. And Paul understands in the previous portion of the letter their difficulties, their suffering, their conflict, their threat of persecution. That Epaphroditus was about to die. Paul understands that they have every reason to be anxious. Thus, it's in that environment of full understanding that he gives the command. And if it wasn't even Paul, if Paul didn't understand, he still would have been able to spoke by the power of the Spirit of God. Why? Because God can understand. God is not lacking in understanding of your circumstances. It's not like this morning. He doesn't know what you're going through. We have a a sympathetic Savior who understands our weaknesses and infirmities. And He is not, again, a tyrannical Egyptian um, uh, Pharaoh who's going to put upon you a task in which you cannot complete. He's not dangling something in front of your face saying, do this, now dance, yet you can never actually engage or receive the fruit of that. He is a good Father who affords to His children this morning the blessings that are all in Christ. And one of those is the very peace of God that would guard your heart against an 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 encumbered um, soul such that it would prevent you from fulfilling your duties in Christ. That's what He's saying. Be anxious for nothing. Number two, we're going to hang our hat on this word, instruction. Um, Instruction. The second portion of this will further instruct us in how to complete this task. So if I'm supposed to be anxious for nothing, Paul, how in the world do I do that? It gives us some further instruction. Some further instruction. He says in uh, verse number 6, but in everything. So in nothing be anxious. Well, how am I going to do that? Well, in everything. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. In everything. With prayer and supplication, let your um, request be made known to God. One of the ways you're going to war against anxiety is through prayer. Paul here actually uses three different forms of the word prayer. Um, so why don't you look at the, I just want to bring up the character of prayer. You're to be prayerful. The way to battle the anxieties and the sinful worries of this world um, is to be prayerful in everything. And then in those prayers, I'm at first, at first that you're to be specific. You know, again, there's three words here that Paul actually uses for prayer. The first is just a prayer that's often used or sometimes used as just general prayer and worship. But more than that, it, it, it refers to specific prayers, particular petitions. The second word is supplication. And supplication actually is a specific word for a petition. The first two really are synonyms, one for another. Maybe, maybe a little nuance here and a nuance there. Um, it could be, an, and we could argue why he does that. We could, we could bring out the nuances and say, you know, that this is what Paul meant by this one, and this is what Paul meant by this one. Um, or it could just be that Paul is emphasizing the nature and need for prayer through repetition. Um, and I think that that may be the reality. 
Why? Because he gives a third one there with another nuance that, 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 that we would translate request. So we have prayer, we have supplication, and we have requests. Paul's describing specific requests um, in that word, specific requests that they ask for, or that you ask for. That Paul is giving us a comprehensive view of prayer. That he's advocating for petitionary prayer, such that we make specific requests to God the Father in the context of a family relationship with Him. So again, we're not talking about kind of a mindless prayer life, a mindless meditation, or even what today some people will very spiritually say, I'm in a spirit of prayer. You know? Although those things, well, although that, that last one is, is true and can be good, um, um, the reality is, is that Paul is calling here for a dynamic, specific, particular prayer life. And he's saying that when you go to God, you're to go to God in such a way that you are making things known. To him, not made known to him in some of a what of a flippant manner. You know, oftentimes our prayer life can be like that. Um, it can be kind of a like, Lord, I just want to let you know something. Do what you with it when you want. You know, it's kind of like a kid who comes through very like, you know, I just want to let you know, Mom, Dad, kids outside by himself. Like you do with it what you want. <laughs> you know, um, just making some general requests. Um, in a very flippant type of manner. Now, the, 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 the picture that's being painted here is actually that you are giving, you have boldly came to the throne room of grace. You are in this passage face to face with God. And that's actually the, the, the nature of the word. The same word that is used here is the same word that's used in um, John 1 1. In the original, this is where we would go for Jehovah Witnesses or Mormons to argue the, the equality of God the Son with God the Father. Um, there's a word there that's proston uh, theon. It, it literally means to be face to face with God. Um, John 1.1, you'll remember, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that phrase, the word, that phrase, the Word was with God, is that is the word that's used here. And it literally means to be that Jesus Christ was face to face, present with God. Um, before time ever began. That as Jesus was with the Father in His presence, face to face, that we too are to be with God in some form in our prayer life. It is speaking of this personal, experiential, intimate communion with the Father. And that word there, that phrase, is what in the New King James, just so that you can underline it or note it, is that you're to let your requests be made known to God. Face to face with God. In the presence of God. And this should be... Um, a good reminder to us, you know, that meditation generally is not enough. The, the, the goal is not to quiet yourself within yourself by yourself, but that, but, but, but the, 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 the cure to anxiety, the prescription, um, the, the, the antidote, if you will, to this malady of life is not found within ourselves. It is found in the very presence of King Jesus, that He is the God of peace and that it is found in communion with him and we'll see that in just a few moments as he as he argues that that peace is not only of god but it is found in christ thus we are not to pray this is application we are not to pray with just vague generalities you know lord take my anxieties away you know you would want to get to the root of them get very specific with god go to god boldly you know 
Oftentimes we will say, you know, I'm praying for so-and-so. You know, even say it to you, I'm, I'm praying for, and then insert a name. You know, like I'm praying for you today. Praying what? You know, literally we could translate that, I ask for you. What are you asking for? What are you petitioning God for? You know, I found that, that, that those people who pray very general and vague realities are those people who are generally lacking in the robust faith necessary to live the Christian life. They are generally the ones that are overwhelmed with anxieties. Why? Because they have no track record to go back as David did in Psalm 143 and said you know, that, that, that he exalted his soul in the things that God had done. Yes, we can do that with the Scriptures as we rely upon the promises of God. But two, the Christian life is experiential. And that you should be able to say to your children, um, experientially in your life, God is faithful. And proclaim the Word of God to Him, but also to, to, to display the faithfulness of God and the fulfillment of those promises in a life devoted to Him, saying that when I was here, this is what God did. Like I went to him broken and encumbered with the anxieties of life, and I followed Peter's instruction and I carried and I cast my burdens upon him, and God was faithful, little one. And he too will be faithful to you. That what we have here is a Christ who is not so far from us, but who runs to us in those moments of need. Such that He is a medicine for our souls. And in the midst of the storm, a peace is given. Such that the world it surpasses all understanding. There is this, this reality that peace is born in the presence of God. In a meaningful relationship with Him. And we're displaying our, and we're, and we're bringing to Him our, our, our maladies, our cares. To Him, such that He can carry them for us. And we're to bring them all, He says, in everything. I love it, Calvin says of this. He says, quote, in the midst of our trials, this is our consolation. This is our solace. To this burden, in the bosom of God, everything that harasses us. Peter says, cast all your anxieties on Him. For He cares for you. That it is a God-glorifying and a man-edifying reality. And you may think, you may have kind of a, a mentality. I don't need to bring anything to God after all. He knows that. Jesus deals with that too in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is more than clear. This is often an issue with even the people of God. Particularly um, of a Gentile nature, right? This is what the Gentiles do. If you're not careful, you'll carry that into your Christianity. Um, in Matthew chapter 6 and verse number 8, he says, Don't pray with vain repetition because your Father already knows what you need before you even ask Him. But we can conclude that if God already knows, what does it mean to make my request known to God? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a good argument you know, from a child. Like, why do I need to pray, Dad? He already knows. So why? It is not to inform God. It is not because for some reason He didn't figure out this morning that you were troubled. It's not because He hasn't organized. It's not because He doesn't... He's just been too busy this morning. He's not made it by your house just yet. But that in it, we're expressing our neediness to God. 
in a complete and full disclosure. And at the same time, it's, a, it's, a, it's an act of humility that is actually more for us than it is for God. It is a means by which God um, accomplishes his, his, his work in the world. But at the same time, it is, it is edifying to us as God is glorified in the answer to prayer. We are commu- this is how we cast our burdens upon Him. This is how we give over to Him our cares. We, this is an expression of the faith that, that, that was lacking in Matthew 6 and trust in Him to provide. In it, we are openly acknowledging, Father, I find myself in such a state that I cannot navigate it on my own. I am insufficient. But in that insufficiency, I am crying out to you who is all sufficient. Because you're the only one that is truly sufficient to meet my need. I come to you. I make it known to you. Do you see how that would glorify God? Psalm 51, call upon me in the day of trouble and I'll deliver you and you shall glorify me. Paul, um, the psalmist says in Psalm 50, again, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Looking to him in our total insufficiency magnifies the sufficiency of God. It magnifies his character, his nature, his ability in an experiential display of God's grace. It says to the world that my God is sufficient. It says to me that He truly is. And that really is one of the most edifying realities in this life. This is what fosters and cultivates and bolsters true saving and sanctifying faith in God. That when He is glorified, I am edified. You know, we often pray, God, would you, we pray that, you, you, that God would be glorified and that we would be edified. But maybe we should... Pray that God would be glorified, which is ourself, which it, the idea may be more of that when God is glorified, it is, it is, it is, it is, it is for, it is for his glory, but also for our good. And these are not two separate things that actually when God is glorified, it is good for us. We don't pray for God's glory and our good as two separate different things, but recognizing that when God is glorified, it is good for us. That the best thing for you this morning is that you would glorify God, that God would be glorified in this place, and that that, that glory, that manifestation of God's glory, that exaltation of Jesus Christ is the best thing for you. That it is the best thing for me. That it is when He is on display in that all-sufficient manner, that we see the display of His glory, and that we are edified and built up. This is to be what characterizes our prayer. And that too, we are not only, that not only is it God glorifying and man edifying, but there is an attitude of prayer that is to come with it, and that is thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. That's what he says in verse number 6. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Your prayer life, too, is to be directed towards God, for the glory of God that's edifying us, but it's also to be with a thankful heart. A thankful heart. Um, that there is to be a thankfulness to God in sending the requests, alleviating the anxieties. And that almost seems impossible, doesn't it? Um... We're not just talking about being thankful for good gifts in the sense 
that we think of them. But there almost seems to be an assumption here by the apostle that we that, that to have a thankfulness in prayer, even over, when we cast our anxieties upon him, is somewhat of a thankfulness for that. And it may be rooted in what I just said, right? How will you ever be thankful unless you realize that what I have here today in this burden to lead me to the, the reality of all sufficiency of Jesus Christ such that He would be glorified. What a gift that is to me. What a gift that is to me. Have you ever, have you, has it ever amazed you? I talked this week with a couple of brothers. Has it ever amazed you that in the most prosperous country in the world it seems to be the manifestation of just so much of the, of the most grievous sins? You think we would be the most joyful because of all the comforts that we have. You know, we think we'd be the most gentle because of all the blessings that God has given. We think, you, know, you think that, that anger would be something that would just be foreign to us because of all the gifts that we have. But, but, but it's amazing how the prosperity uh, breeds an ungrateful heart um, such that we are just unthankful people. And the more that we get, the more unthankful that we become because the more that we want... Um, and that oftentimes in poverty um, leads to greater faith and gratefulness as we realize that everything is a gift from God, sometimes even that poverty. You know, some people ask me about my upbringing and the difficulties that were there. And I said, would you ever have it any other way? No, no, because those were some of the cogs in the wheel that brought me to Jesus Christ. Humbled my heart. And I realized that even those things, although I would not wish them, uh, some of them upon any enemy, was, was in to the grace of God to humble my heart, to recognize that there is a need for my soul outside of myself and apart from Jesus Christ that rest will never be found. William Hendrickson says, Prayer without thanksgiving is like a bird without wings. Such a prayer cannot rise to heaven. And find no acceptance with God. That we are to come with a thankful heart. Even in the midst of our anxieties. With our anxieties. Caring, uh, casting them upon Him. Paul is assuming that we have a certain um, attitude towards our lives. Our trials. Our sufferings. How else could Paul glory in Christ in the book of Philippians. Um, other than recognizing that it was all a gift from God in some sense. Um, to drive him to his weakness such that he may honor and glorify Christ who is all sufficient. And then uh, number three, we'll see the implication of that. Um, the implication of that, boys and girls, we just, that just means the, 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 the result. What's the result of, of being anxious for nothing? What's the result of, of, of bringing your petitions to God, letting them be made known with prayer, with thankfulness? What's going to happen? Well, God promises peace. But if we take heed to the faithful command, we follow, um, not only with our hands, but with our heart, and that our, that our hands and our knees and our feet and our mouths are this full expression of the sufficiency of God and this thankfulness of heart and this total dependence upon Him. That if we are faithful to this command, God affords to those people um, in, the, in their prayerfulness, in their display of humility, a peace which surpasses all understanding. That the sure result of a battle over anxiety, thankful prayer, is the very peace of God Himself. So what do we mean by peace? Again, 
Let us, let's, let's talk about what we don't mean. Paul, we know what Paul's not saying. Paul's not saying, let your requests be made known to God, and then God will grant you all of your requests. He'll take away every anxiety and every anxiety-producing situation in your life. I mean, he actually doesn't say that. I think that the, the, the nature of the, the verse is, is that as you humbly, thankfully call out to God, recognizing His true nature, trusting in Him to be glorified, and to do what's best and right on your behalf, because you're His child and He's the Father, that there will be a peace of God that accompanies that, and it will guard your heart from sinful anxiety. You'll recognize that all of this is a gift. And if it's God's gift, He'll take care of me in the midst of it. This is the best thing for me. Um, This is a promise. Not that God will move at every whim and word, but that He'll even change the circumstances just on a simple request. But that in it, God will change us by glorifying Himself. And that Christ will be ultimately active and experientially active in the circumstances. MacArthur says, quote, the real challenge of Christian living is not to see if you can eliminate every uncomfortable issue in your life. The real issue of Christian living is to see if you can trust your holy, your infinitely holy, sovereign, and powerful God in the midst of every situation and have his perfect peace. Jones, again, who's dealing with depression on so many levels, says this is no doubt one of the noblest, greatest, and most comforting statements to be found anywhere in in extant literature. Nothing is greater comfort than these two verses. This peace is a divine peace that God affords to His children. I mean, it is the very peace of God. It is this inseparable attribute from God Himself, something that He could not give up. It is, but at the same time, it is what we would refer to as communicable. It is something that God communicates to His children. That, that it characterizes God Himself. That God has no sinful anxieties. He's not wringing His hands. He has no worries. He is infinitely happy in Himself. He is infinitely joyful. He is infinitely at peace or peaceful. This this ultimate serenity of being. Um, Spurgeon refers to this as the unruffled serenity of the infinitely happy God. He had a way with words. John 14.27 says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. In Isaiah 26, verse 3, you see these words, you'll keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. And you see that this peace is tied with the mind, and, and with the heart, and with the faith that a man is to have, a woman is to have in God. That all these things come together. That a faithfulness and and trust and the promises and the person of God, the person of Christ, um, within the mind and soul of a man will cultivate this perfect peace in the midst of circumstances. And that it is the very nature of God that He communicates those blessings to His people. That this peace is beyond reason. It's not only divine, but it's beyond reason. It doesn't violate it in any way, but it certainly transcends it. Thus he says that this peace is, is surpassing all understanding. And it's, it means more than just simply, you know, it's just that great that I can't explain it with words. Although, that's true. That in this world, in this, this, uh, this ideal of fallen man, the natural mind, the world system, the devil, everything together, um, it's, there's no explanation for it, you know? 
There's no explanation. There's no reason why you should be content. There's nothing in this world. And you, know, you look from a Gentile perspective, a pagan perspective, an unbelieving perspective. You're tossed to and fro day to day in life. You're in toils and stresses. You're in, down in the deep. You've been beaten three times. Like, there's no reason in the world that you should have a state of soul with a smile on your face because your, your joy is complete and you have peace in Christ. Thus, do what to me you will. My confidence is in Christ. Thus you lay aside with a gentle spirit all of your rights and authorities. You absorb offense. Why? Because you know that God is at your side. He is comforting your soul. He is the one that is guarding you. And it is actually that peace which guards you. The peace is beyond reason and understanding. But at the same time, note that the peace is a guardian. I love this. Maybe the favorite part of my verse. It's my favorite part of the verse. It's a vivid military term, this word. That's what he says in verse number 7. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That it gives the illustration of a military concept to secure peace. This would have been something that those at Philippi would have understood because they're a Roman colony. And what Paul is saying is that the peace of God which passes all understanding shall guard as a garrison of soldiers, protect the king, protect the area, protect the walls, as they stand there against all enemies, that within those walls, as the battle is raging around, there is an environment cultivated within those walls, among the king, among the people, as if you had to wake them up to let them know something's going on outside. Otherwise, they would have not known it. Why? Because there is such a peace within the colony. That they have such strong men. They have such devoted soldiers. They have such unity and an arsenal of defense. Such that when anything comes against this uh, fortress, that which was within, it cannot be moved. There is nothing to fear. Honey, go back to sleep. Our men have got this. I know that you hear some rumblings outside, some vibration, but sleep well tonight because it doesn't, because, because there's no way in the world that they have any strength or victory over us. You sleep well. Don't, don't, don't waste one moment on what's going on outside because they will guard you. And Paul commends to the people of God such a peace that will guard. Against every malady, every enemy, anything that this world has to afford from with outside the church or within the world, the flesh and the devil, all of the enemies combined. Paul is saying that God affords this to you such that it will protect your heart. Don't lose any sleep over it tonight. You know, the very peace of God will rest in your souls. William Hendrickson says, Again, faithful man, the peace of God will guard you over your hearts and thoughts in Christ Jesus. Thus, also only far more so God's peace will mount guard at the door of your heart and thoughts. It will prevent carking care from the corroding, from corroding the heart, which is in the mainspring of life. The root of thinking, willing, and feeling. He goes on to say it will also prevent unworthy reasonings from entering your thought life. Thus, if anyone should tell the believer, he says, quote, 
God does not exist. An everlasting life is a mere dream. He would get nowhere. For that very moment, the child of God would be experiencing within himself the realities which the infidel is trying to reason out of existence. There is nothing that would ever deter you um, is what he's reasoning. Why? Because the very peace of God within your soul is a witness to the presence of God such that um, all the reasonings, all of the um, trials, all of the sufferings, all of the difficulties, all of the persecution, all of the opposition, everything in the world mounting up against that reality, the peace of God would proclaim to your soul the very existence of God in such an experiential way that you wouldn't lose a sleep over it. It wouldn't even pass through your mind. You wouldn't entertain a thought. It will guard you, church. It will guard your heart. It will guard your mind. The very, the very um, recesses of your souls. Um, it will guard you from the anxieties of the life. It will guard you from the worries that would deter you. Um, you will be a paralytic no more. God, Jesus says, arise, my son, and walk. And thus you will against all um, that this world has to bring against you. Why? Because... The heart of a man is the soul of a man. It is what a man is. Whatever your heart is, it has you, right? For out of the heart flows the issues of life, he says in Proverbs 4.23. Whatever has your mind is a grip upon you. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And Paul says that the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. And that in the mind and in the heart, Paul says that there is this peace that will guard you from all of those things. And when that peace is there, that is what you will be. And that is when you will be the most godly. That is when you will display His character in such a way. And where is this peace found, Paul? In Christ Jesus, by Christ Jesus, through Christ Jesus, verse number 7. That people will search for this peace, no doubt. There is somewhat of a, of a, of a, of a, um, a portion of it, an image of it, a picture of it in this world. Um, as, as, as men, and we know that because men strive for it. We know that peace is this, this, this ineffable substance that is pursued by all men. That's why you heard the statistics this morning. That we are plagued by the anxieties of this world and we would do anything and everything uh, to build a tower up to the heavens again as high as we can to find it. We will give all of our efforts to it. Why? Because it is torture without rest in the soul. Thus that people search for it in substances and in activities and in people and in relationships and in marriage and in children and in good works and in bad works and a whole host of things. And this is not new. Jeremiah 8 verse 11 says, For they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people, silently saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Peace has been the pursuit of mankind since the beginning with all sorts of toys and trinkets and devices, and no man has found it outside of Jesus Christ. It is in Him and in Him alone that this morning, if you will find it, if you despair, if this morning you are worried and encumbered about in the midst of your service such that you are paralyzed, if you're a little one this morning and you're overwhelmed by it, I mean, it is found in Christ and in Christ alone. Do you despair this morning? 
And again, I don't want to give any indication that I don't believe in biology. I recognize that there are some things this morning that do contribute to that, and that there are physical maladies, and that the body is tied to the soul, and the soul is tied to the body, and they express themselves, and they interconnect, and that there are some things that really can contribute to the anxieties of your souls. I'm not talking about this this morning. I'm talking about a sinful anxiety. Because you are encumbered by the worries of this life that has begun in the heart and soul, the spiritual body of a man. And I say to you this morning, nothing new. The answer is in Christ and in Christ alone. You will find it nowhere else. And you must continue to pursue it. John 16, 33. These things I have spoken to you so that you may have peace in me. And I would exhort you this morning, command you, um, not, in a, not in a grievous type of way, but to present before you the, the privilege of all of His children in Christ. The very peace of God is afforded to those this morning who will trust and who will believe. Isn't it amazing this morning how we can sit in the most quiet and serene of environments, it's on a beach or a mountaintop, on vacation, seeking for this peace of soul, and yet still have the most torturous unrest in our inner men. The environment does not change it. And yet at the same time, there is another person who can be enduring the trial of their lives, their body being ravaged by boils, cancer, paralysis, or sufferings which we cannot imagine. And yet you can tell that they have the very peace of God that is, passes all understanding. It is undeniable and unexplainable. This morning, by virtue of Jesus Christ, I offer you that. Find Him. Rest in Him. Even this day, this Lord's day, is a picture of that rest that we have in Christ. Stop laboring. Stop torturing yourselves. Stop worrying over things that don't really matter. Stop lying to yourselves about all of the possibilities. Believe Christ. Find the truth. Rest in Him. And spend the rest of your lives laboring for the kingdom of God. This is not a natural temperament. This is a miracle, the miracle of Christ. And that miracle is afforded to you today in Him. So I would beg you, be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will garrison your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. For the privilege it is to sit at the feet of the very Spirit of Christ. Father, the tangible, experiential person is working and laboring in our lives, Father, because the Son sent Him. Father, we need Him so. Father, we know that we are insufficient. We know, Father, that without Christ we can do nothing. And we know, Father, that the Spirit of Christ is necessary for any of these realities to be a reality in our own lives. So once again, we cast ourselves at your feet. Father, recognizing that even our faith is, in some sense, not our own. That, Father, in our unbelief, help our unbelief. 
Father, in our lack of faith, give us faith. Father, make these realities known to us. Father, what seems like ink on a page, write it upon our hearts. Seal these truths, Father. Engrave them such that we, they will never be forgotten. Plant them like a seed, Father, in our souls and minds, such that fruit will do, come in due time. And Father, if it is our, 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 our hearts that need the soil, that needs to be prepared, then do it so. Father, bring out the, bring out the, the machinery, the tools necessary, Father, to, to, to tenderize these hearts, Father, to break up that, 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 that hollow ground, that hardened environment, Father, such that the work of God would be accomplished as that seed is embedded, Father, into the soft soil of our hearts. And Father, may we pursue You in prayer, may you make yourself known as we enter into your presence, Father. May your Son be glorified in our lives. May we be thankful for the good gifts of God, even, Father, when they don't seem all that good. Father, help us to bring our anxieties and cares with full trust that you're able to carry them by the power of your Spirit and your Son. Father, may the peace of God gear us in our hearts. May we know, Father, something of what is said of this verse. Not only theologically or intellectually, Father, but may we say to our children that this is real. Not fully resting in our own experience, but because our experience was in accord with God's truth. And thus, when believed, it is apprehended. So help us to apprehend it that all the world may know that Jesus Christ is Lord. Father, this is your work to do, yet at the same time, May we not throw down our hands. Father, may we dig our feet in and may this be the pursuit of our lives. Father, we trust this in your hands because we know that apart from that, it will not be done. In Christ's name we pray, amen. If you will, we'll stand and sing number 411.